I want to start with a quote uh, from a guy named Carl Truman. This was written in the journal First Things uh, in the last week or two. As in the second century, Christianity is now regarded not simply as absurd, but also as immoral. We may not be accused of cannibalism and incest, but our sexual ethic and understanding of selfhood are seen as hateful and ignorant. And perhaps for the first time since the third and fourth century persecutions of Decius, Valerian, and Diocletian, the terms of civic loyalty and of faithful church membership are becoming mutually exclusive. As ancient Roman citizens had to sacrifice to the emperor or risk being punished as subversive of civil society, so modern Western Christians are beginning to face that choice. Affirm gay marriage or have your business boycotted. Let your children choose their own gender or have them taken away from you. Maybe we are not quite there yet, but we are too close for comfort and complacency. Now, I don't know what you think about that statement. I don't know if you think that statement is, you might think that's over the top. And certainly Christians in America have it better than Christians in many other places in the world uh, in terms of being able to, to, to practice our faith freely. But, but something has definitely shifted uh, in our culture. One of the presidential candidates recently said that, that religious institutions that oppose same-sex marriage should have their tax-exempt status stripped away from them because of, of that position. And I'm not here to offer a commentary on that one way or the other, but simply to say that I don't think a presidential candidate would have made that statement 15 or 20 years ago. This is not something that you would really say publicly, I don't think. And so there is certainly a, a greater disapproval of Christianity kind of in the, the waters of our culture today, and people feel very free to express that. And so my question is, for us this morning is, what are we going to do with that? What are we as Christians going to do with that disapproval, with that reproach that we may be called to bear because we bear the name of Jesus if, if the situation as it is continues to escalate? So that's what we're going to think about. But let's look together uh, at Hebrews chapter 13, beginning at verse 9. And this is God's word. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Pray with me. Uh, Father, uh, help us now, help me as I, I seek to, to, to preach your word. Help us, give us ears uh, to hear um, and, and show it what it means. Um, show us what it means uh, to actually bear uh, the reproach of Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen. 
So verse 13 really sits at the middle of what I want to talk about here. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Reproach, uh, disapproval, shame, disgrace. And I want to ask two questions. What should our posture be toward reproach? And how do we maintain that posture? So what should our posture be toward reproach? And how do we actually maintain that posture? What should our posture be toward reproach? I want to read a quote from Scott Saul's book, uh, From Weakness to Strength, which I'm going to borrow pretty freely from this morning. Uh, Our officers just just read through it and really enjoyed it. But he said this, A time may come when certain organizations are put out of business because faithful Christianity becomes incompatible with the dogma, moral vision, and laws of the land. A time may come when religious freedom gives way to religious persecution for those who stand firm in their commitment to be disciples of Jesus versus disciples of prevailing culture. Perhaps what was true of Christians in ancient Rome and what is still true of Christians in other parts of the world today will also someday become true of us, losing our livelihoods, our friends, our families, and even our lives for Jesus' sake. But then he says, and we shouldn't be surprised by all that. And we shouldn't be surprised by all that. And that's, that's kind of the first point I want to make is in terms of our posture towards reproach, we shouldn't be surprised when we have to bear reproach. Because Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. Uh, Peter in 1 Peter 4 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Well, why shouldn't we be surprised? Well, Jesus told us not to be surprised. And we shouldn't be surprised because we have chosen to follow a suffering Savior who suffered outside of the gate. Now, what does that mean that Jesus suffered outside of the gate. Look at verse 11 and 12 again. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people um, through his own blood. In the Old Testament, on the Day of Atonement, the high priests would take animal sacrifices and they would sacrifice them Uh, And after they had offered those sacrifices, often with sacrifices, they would would eat a portion of the sacrifice. But on the Day of Atonement, this wasn't done. You actually had to take what was left over and you you took it back outside of the camp and it was burned up out there. Uh, To be outside of the camp was, was to be unclean. It was to be outside of God's presence, to be unfit for God's presence even, to be rejected. And the symbolism was that the judgment of God had actually fallen on these animals and that they had been removed from God's presence so that the people could actually now draw near to God. That the wrath of God had fallen on these animals instead of falling on the people. They'd been judged in their place. Uh, We've seen in the book of Hebrews as we've studied this that, that, that the work of these animals, so to speak, that this was only symbolic. That they couldn't actually... These sacrifices cannot actually take care of our sin problem. Instead, they pointed us to someone who could take care of our sin problem. Verse 12, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate 
in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. And so the animal sacrifices were meant to point us to the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus who suffered outside the gate for us. Now what's the author getting at? He's saying just as those animals were sacrificed outside the gate, so now Jesus was sacrificed outside of the gate for us. Jesus was most likely crucified just outside of the gates of the city of Jerusalem, probably in a place where people coming in and out of the city could see what was happening there. Crucifixion was meant to be humiliating. You're naked, you're exposed on this cross, you're hung there for everybody to see. It's meant to be a humiliating death. And there, outside of the city, outside of the camp, so to speak, Jesus endured the judgment of God in the place of his people. He took God's wrath so that God's wrath could be turned away from us so that we could actually draw near to God. Now, we're going to come back to that, but in verse 13, look at verse 13. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. And the author is saying, look, coming to Jesus means coming to him outside the city. Coming to him outside the camp. Coming to him at the cross and staying there at the cross. Not, not leaving to try to find shelter in a less shameful place. You have to go to him and identify with him there at the cross. You have to go and identify with a suffering and humiliated Savior. And if you identify with a suffering and humiliated Savior, that means you're going to face suffering and humiliation in your life as well. Uh, John 15, Jesus says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Uh, Several years ago, there was an evangelistic campaign that said God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And that is is very true on a macro sense. But, But if you hear that through the ears of Uh, our pursuit of happiness and prosperity and comfort in America, it kind of becomes sort of a prosperity gospel light. And and, and if you hear that when persecution comes, your faith is going to be rocked because you don't have any lens to view that through. Wait, I thought I was promised this wonderful life and it doesn't feel very wonderful right now. What should our posture towards reproach be? We shouldn't be surprised by it. We shouldn't be surprised by it because we serve a Savior who bore reproach himself. Well, secondly, verse 13 says we're to, to bear that reproach. Now, which is simply to say, don't run away from Jesus when things get hard, when persecution comes, when others mock your faith. We're actually called to endure that persecution. We're called to, to take up the cross and follow him. Now, that reproach may look like somebody making fun of you because you, you bow your head to, to, prayer, to pray before a meal. Uh, mocking your commitment to abstain from sex outside of the context of marriage. It may mean they boycott your restaurant. It may mean that you lose your job. It it might mean that you have to put up with lawsuit after lawsuit because you're not being tolerant enough. It might mean that you get hauled off to a re-education camp if you're a believer in China right now. It might mean that you lose your life. Uh, In 1554, as they were being burned at the stake, Uh, For their faith, Bishop Hugh Latimer turned to Nicholas Ridley 
in the very famous words and said, Play the man, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. And what was he saying? Play, play the man. Bear the reproach which your Savior endured and which he is now calling you to endure with him. When reproach comes, we shouldn't be surprised by it. And we are actually called to, to bear it. But there's a certain way that we're to bear it that I want us to, to think about here. Verse 15, through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. When we get to bear reproach, we should actually praise God that we get to bear reproach. Now that's kind of counterintuitive. First, first Peter 4 but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of Christ rest upon you. Uh, in Acts 5, after the apostles are arrested and beaten and then they're released, we're told that they left rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Paul in Philippians 3 writes that he hopes to know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so the, the scripture indicates that there's this deepening knowledge of Christ that comes to believers and we actually have to suffer for Jesus and suffer with Christ. Samuel Rutherford said that the great king keeps his finest wine in the cellar of affliction. That this is the place where we really come to know the love and the, and the presence of Christ in our lives. Uh, suffering tests us. Suffering for the, for the faith refines us. It shows that we are truly his. It brings us into deeper fellowship with Christ. It can even advance the kingdom. And so we can rejoice in suffering for the name of Christ instead of hardening our hearts against God. We can rejoice in suffering instead of hardening our hearts we can praise God that he would allow to suffer us, allow us to suffer with Jesus. But that's not all that we're supposed to do as we suffer, as if that weren't enough. Not only do we maintain this posture of praise, we're called to maintain a posture of generosity and doing good. Look at verse 16. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Um, we're called to do good, even as we're suffering. We're called to, called to do good and to share what we have. Jesus in Matthew 5 said, love your enemies. And I want you to actually pray for those who persecute you. You know, it's, it's, it's one thing to keep praising God while I'm being persecuted, but I'm also called not to, to pull back from the world and feel sorry for myself and get angry at everybody, but I'm to continue to do good and to share what I have. And I'm not just to do good to other believers. Jesus says I'm actually to love my enemies. Um, but for many years in our country, there's been a, a war of sorts going on. We'll, we'll call it a, the, the culture war, uh, as it seems that Christians and those with more secular mindsets have kind of been battling for control of our cultural institutions. Uh, and, you know, we do have amazing freedoms in this country. And I'd argue that those 
freedoms exist at least in some degree because we've been operating to some degree out of a Christian worldview in this country. That, that the Christian worldview, a Christian worldview that sees men and women as actually made in the image and likeness of God and therefore having dignity uh, and under the authority of God and therefore his is the supreme authority and not any human authority. And so this Christian worldview actually lays the foundation for liberty and that's a wonderful thing. And some people are, are called to fields like law and politics and it's a good thing for them to work to, to maintain this liberty and the, and the religious freedoms that we have as believers and we should be thankful for them. The, all that said, this us against them mindset that we can so easily get caught up in, I don't think that's really what the church is supposed to be about. That's not where we're supposed to be devoting all of our energy. Here's, here's how Scott Sauls put it. As Jesus said, our chief purpose and mission is in life is not to defend and protect our own rights and privileges and comforts. Rather, our chief purpose and mission is to deny ourselves daily, take up a cross and follow Jesus, even to death if called upon to do so. All the while taking every opportunity to surprise our neighbors, especially those who not, do not believe as we do, with a life-giving, otherworldly love. What if we were known more for our love than for what we're against? What, 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 if, what if that's what the church was known for? That we were known more for our love because we were more concerned with loving those who oppose us than we were concerned with protecting our own rights. And not to say those are always mutually exclusive, but, but what do we want to be known for? Uh, Madeline Lingle said this, <clears throat> we draw people to Christ not by loudly discrediting what they believe, by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are, but by showing them a light that is so lovely that they want with all their hearts to know the source of it. I think I could just kind of read that and we could quit for the day, but we're not going to do that. Um, I, I'm going to read that again. Though. We draw people to Christ not by loudly discrediting what they believe, by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are, but by showing them a light that is so lovely that they want with all their hearts to know the source of it. Uh, Scott Sauls writes this, because we are his followers, opposition is our opportunity to walk in the path of the one who loved us and gave himself for us to resist cynicism and despair and fear. We can channel our efforts toward lives of radical kindness, generosity, and love for a hurting world, even if a hurting world does not love us back. The early church understood that a life of love did not guarantee their safety. To the contrary, sometimes a life of love threatened their safety. When the plague came to, to Rome, many Greco-Roman citizens tossed family members into the streets to avoid catching the plague themselves. Christians responded by going out to the streets and offering hospitality to the dying, contagious Roman men, women, and children. Many of those who were given shelter did not believe in Jesus, but were loyal to Caesar and therefore considered opponents to Christians. Yet it was the Christians who gave them the gift of love, care, hospitality, the gospel, and an opportunity to die with dignity. Many Christians got sick as they opened their lives and homes in this way, and many also died. Considering, concerning this sacrificial love, Emperor Julian wrote that Christians took better care of Rome's poor and infirm than Rome did. 
According to Julian, this was a threat to Rome's sovereignty, and he was right. By the 3rd century A.D., the moral fabric of Rome had been transformed by the ministry of word and deed coming from the life-giving, persecuted minority known as the Christian Church. Uh, a few years ago, you guys will remember there was a, it was a shooting, I think it was on a, a Saturday evening uh, at a gay nightclub in Orlando where 49 people were killed. And on the Sunday after the shooting, Chick-fil-A, uh, which has actually been boycotted because of their founders' views on what biblical marriage actually is, uh, and which is also usually closed on Sunday, they decided instead to open one or two of their local stores. They called their employees in, and they made sweet tea and lemonade and chicken sandwiches, and they gave them to people who were lined up donating blood for the shooting victims from that nightclub attack. What if, what if we were known more for our good deeds? What if we were known more for what we are for than for what we're against? As we face uh, reproach and disapproval and hostility, Christians shouldn't be surprised by that, but we should bear that reproach and praise God and do good to others. Well, how do we do that? How, do, how are we able to do that? We're able to do that because we know a Savior who loved us and did good to us when we were his enemies. Because we know a Savior who bore our guilt and our shame. Uh, verse 9 says that the readers of Hebrews were in danger of being led away by these teachings about food. And we're not exactly sure what these teachings were. It may have related to the Old Testament ceremonial food laws. It may be that these former Jews were skipping out on some of the Jewish feasts of the day and they were giving them a hard time about that. Uh, it, it may be also that they were catching grief because their new religion didn't involve an altar or any ongoing sacrifices. And the author of Hebrews says to them, guys, you've got a better altar than that. You've got a better altar than that. You've got better sacrifices than that. What's he talking about? He's talking about the cross. He's talking about Jesus suffering outside of the gate. Jesus suffering and bearing our guilt and bearing our shame. Sanctifying his people, not through the blood of goats and bulls, but sanctifying people through the shedding of his very own blood. See, the, the way we endure, the, the way we continue to praise God, the way we do good others to others who are being mocked and scorned by the world is by remembering that we have a Savior who did good, the ultimate good for us as he was being mocked and scorned and crucified. And he did that. So all those things that, that you are so ashamed of, all those things that you feel so guilty about, all that condemnation that, that we drag around with us, he did that so, so all that could be removed. He, he bore our shame and he bore our guilt outside of the city outside of the gate so that we could draw near to God and experience his love and experience his welcome. But there's more. Verse 14 says, for we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Uh, Jesus in John 14 says, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would not have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. Revelation 21 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, 
For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Uh, A few years ago, there was a high school teacher named Ben Ellis who was dying of cancer. Uh, And because the school, I think it was a school where he taught, knew that worshiping God with other people was one of Ben's favorite things to do. Uh, Christ Presbyterian Academy let 400 of their students leave school in the middle of the day and go to his house and stand outside of his bedroom window and sing praises to God. To, to, to stand in his lawn and to worship God because they knew that would be an encouragement to him. That video went viral and over 20 million people saw it. Uh, a couple of days later, Ben's former pastor stopped by and Ben told him that he had actually been praying that God would just give him a few more days so that through his suffering, more people could know about God's grace and God's love. And I think God kind of answered that prayer, didn't he? But there's one more thing Ben said that I, I think we need to hear. When he was asked if there was any message that he would like to pass along to the students who were assembled outside of his window, he said this, tell them it's all true. Tell them it's all true. Uh, Many of you have been on missions trips and and you may have been to places where it was hot and it was uncomfortable and the mosquitoes were, they just buggy, they were actually dangerous. Uh, Where the the weight of the, the poverty was oppressive to you, where the food wasn't great, where you didn't sleep that well. But you kept going and you kept serving all week because you knew at the end of the week you were gonna get on a plane and you're gonna go back home and everything was gonna be okay. What if you and I got up every day and we looked in the mirror and we said to ourselves, I'm on a missions trip. Today I'm on a missions trip and I may have to bear reproach today, but I'm gonna praise God and I'm gonna love others and I'm gonna bear up under this because I knew at the end of this life, I'm getting on a plane and I'm going home. I'm going home. What if we believe that? What if we believe that this really is all true? Wouldn't that, wouldn't that change how you and I think about bearing reproach? Let me pray for us. Father, it, these are hard things to... to to think about and we confess that we want the benefits of having a suffering savior without having to to do any suffering ourselves we, we'd just rather not uh, and so help us when you call us to this uh, to bear up and to praise you and not to not to fight against those who oppose us uh, but to do good to them And in so doing, point them to Jesus. Uh, Would you help us please, Father? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.